This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Yes, welcome to another Sunday night live broadcast of Cascade of History from Space 101.1 FM, the biggest little radio station in all of the Pacific Northwest. We punch far above our weight. We're here in the old master-at-arms quarters near the gatehouse at the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station, a historic building, a historic area, now known as Magnuson Park on the shores of historic Lake Washington. You could use the adjective historic to describe just about everything about uh, the area where we're broadcasting from tonight and uh, hopefully about the show, Cascade of History. We've got a great show for you tonight, as we always do. We are live uh, 101.1 FM, heard throughout most of Seattle, much of North Seattle, and over across the lake in Kirkland, my hometown. We also stream at space101fm.org. If the signal's not coming in too well on your radio, you can always stream us anywhere in the great Pacific Northwest, really anywhere in the world. Uh, we're a nonprofit, low-power FM station. Um, we've got a lot of great programs on 24 hours a day throughout the week. A um, couple of live shows in a row tonight. Um, coming up at 9 o'clock, Jay's Radio Hour is going to be on. Jay comes into the studio a little bit before me. We worked out a system where uh, – <laughs> I don't want to go too far behind the curtain here, but I – to play my outro music, I gave that to Jay so he can sneak in here at about 5 minutes to 9, unplug my little audio device, plug his in, I say my final little words of wisdom or whatever I say, and then he presses a button and plays the closing credits on the show on his machine. It's just that it's that kind of a class operation here. We figured out ways to make things smooth and seamless, try to be as professional as possible. Even though we are a low-power FM volunteer station, everyone is a volunteer, but we do like contributions. You can go to the website, space101fm.org, and contribute there because we have to pay for the electricity and the equipment and stuff like that. And we do have some people who work on staff during the week who kind of make things all come together. But most of the shows, I think all the shows are hosted by volunteers. And I love doing it. And we're just, uh, we're starting our second full year of this program. We took time off in the summer and we took time off at uh, right around Christmas time. But we try to get together every week. If you've never heard the show before, we talk to people and typically we try to do live phone interviews wherever possible, rarely do anything on tape. Talk to people around Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, that area known as the old Oregon country that uh, when European settlers first started to arrive, explorers back in the oh, 17th century, 18th century, in great numbers in the 1790s and then in huge numbers by the time you get to the 1830s, 1840s. That's when the old Oregon country starts to come into, uh, into existence in the, in the mind's eye anyway. And that's the area we try to explore metaphorically and otherwise, as Pat Cashman says in our opening bit every week. A um, couple things before we have our first guest join us here in a minute. Um, a little bit later on in the show, we're going to talk about yesterday's Pacific Northwest Historians Guild Conference in Seattle. I gave the keynote address Saturday morning. I brought my little uh, recorder. I have this little Zoom recorder that fits in my pocket and clipped on the lavalier mic on my lapel. And I intended to record myself giving my speech so I could use it as filler on tonight's show <laughs> so I could take a break. But Somehow I didn't press the right button. I didn't record any of it. But I have a, one, one little anecdote from that um, 
from that speech yesterday I wanted to share about the time back in 2001 when I had just I'd been working at Mohai for about a year at that point, and we were sort of battling with HistoryLink for the hearts and minds of the community. Who would, who would be most closely associated with the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of Seattle back in 2001? It all sounds very much like that, um, that film now about Red, White, and Blaine, uh, the one with the... Uh, anyway, it's, it's, uh, it seems really petty when I talk about it now, but I thought it was a good story about what we did to uh, make up a phony holiday and celebrate it for the first and only time back in 2001. So I'll tell that story a little bit later on. We're going to play the second installment from a 1951 recording we played part of last week. And, and when I played it last week, I didn't know any of the context. I just knew it was about Chief Seattle... I knew it was probably from around the late 40s or the early 50s, and I've since figured out it's from a, it's from a series that was called Their Name Was Courage, and uh, we'll play, play the second installment, and it's probably going to be about a three or four installment series. Each one's about three or four minutes long. I've kind of broken it up into pieces, um, and I'll tell you all the backstory that I learned about it. Just, just in doing some uh, online research in the last couple of days, I found some old clippings in the newspaper, and I know a little bit more about that program now, so I can present it with some more context. But before we get to all that stuff, as I take a big deep breath and uh, get more comfortable in my chair here, I want to welcome our first guest, an old friend of mine, Frank Abe. Let's see if we can get him on the phone here. There's always a series of buttons I have to press to do this. First I press that one, then I press that one, then I say, Frank, can you hear me? <laughs> hear that buzz. There you are. Hey, I can Frank. feel that buzz of live, <laughs> live local radio feeling. <laughs> Real throwback. Uh, yeah. That's the thing. You know, it's funny because like Sunday night in the glory days of radio, like the 30s and 40s, Sunday night was like the biggest night of the week. All the most expensive shows, the sponsored shows, that was, you know, that was everything. Now it's just like a ghetto on Sunday nights. There's yeah, yeah. That was gathered around the radio because that was all they had. <laughs> fireside, a fireside chat. Yeah, exactly. And you had to wait for the programs to come on. You couldn't listen to them on demand. It's hard to imagine how... Uh, how barbaric those times must have been. But, and, uh, and, then the, and the signal goes off at 11 or 12 midnight. They right? <laughs> broadcast a certain amount of time. If, if you don't recognize that voice, it's Frank Abe. He was at Cairo Radio <laughs> a long time ago. I want the audience, I want to introduce you a little bit, because I've known you for a long time, Frank. I listened, used thank to listen you. to you when I was a little kid. I used to listen to you on Cairo Radio. Well, you, thank you for aging me, Felix. Yeah, when, no. you say, when you say recognize the voice, it's been like 35 years since <laughs> I was on the air in Seattle. <laughs> but our listeners, you because you, I've been doing this show for about a year, and you've been on my list of people I wanted to have on the show for a long time, so I'm glad you, I'm glad oh. you finally said yes after all those times I asked you. Oh, you're very kind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I remember hearing you when I was a little kid on Cairo. I think you went to work for Cairo Radio probably, what, 1979? 1979. Yeah. I'll be darned. Okay. I needed, I needed a job, so yeah. <laughs> and I remember you'd be for the, the King County Courthouse. You did a lot of the crime beat and the oh, King yeah. County Courthouse beat. Yeah. Yes. And then when I went to work for Cairo in 1991, I got to work with you. I got to meet you in person and stuff. And it was just like, you know, it was, it was like meeting a bunch of celebrities when I went to work for Cairo and met you and Bill Yen and Dave Ross and... Dave Dave and, Stone. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that I was good to you. That was the most important thing when we talked to you. I appreciate that. I wasn't, I wasn't a, 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 a bad guy. Yeah. No, you were great. I remember, like, yeah. I remember there, was some, there was some crime that we were covering. You were doing the bulk of the work. It was about a guy who had, oh, man, it was a, it was a murder. A guy had murdered his, he'd been convicted of murdering his wife, like drowned her in Lake Sammamish or something. Oh, my God. And then there was he, there was an earlier one of his earlier partners or f- f- wives or something had died in a falling off a of Beacon Rock down in Skamania County. Oh my God! So you were reporting this. I mean, they were going we're going way deep here, but you were reporting that live from King County Courthouse that yeah. had been convicted. And I I got to I was just doing like you know I was 22 I was just taking traffic reports from people with cell phones, 
but they had me call, I called the Skamania courthouse and got them to say they were, they said, yes, now we're going to look into whether this other thing was a crime too. So I got to add that to the story and I felt like a, like a big shot radio a journalist. Real, a real newsman, yeah. Yeah, it was very exciting. It, it, and then, you know, I, and I'm not even exaggerating. When I got to work at Cairo, like the newsroom was such a cool place because there's all those nosy people there. Yeah. Um, everybody's in everyone else's business and they're shouting across the room to answer the phone and stuff. Nobody has a cell phone. Everyone's got just g- generic desk phones. And like Jackie O'Ryan, we got to call it. Have to shout, Jackie O'Ryan, line three. And Jim French is there preparing his show, you know, midday show. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, there's actually um, not teletypes, but there are there is a news feed that's printing out on a like a dot matrix printer of stuff coming off the news wire. It was, and your job probably was to rip the wires. Wasn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if everybody gets as excited about that stuff as I did back then, I and mean, I still get that way now because the newsroom, it's like everyone has permission there to be really nosy, and everybody knows it is a know-it-all, and everyone can be kind of like, you know, you don't have to explain a lot of context about stuff because everybody's kind of paying attention to everything. You it know was, what I mean? It wasn't nosy. We were, we were curious. Yes, and we, and we that's wanted, the word. We wanted the facts. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, and then, you know, it's, uh, God, I remember, um, let's see, Dave DeLackey and Dave Ross were the afternoons, and Greg Herschel in the mornings with uh, Dave Stone reading the news when yeah. I was there, and Dave. And, uh, we, we just had a reunion of Cairo Radio uh, folks uh, last, like, two weeks ago. Oh, did you go to that? At Kathleen Warren's house, and uh, Dave Ross was there. Yeah. Dave Ross is still in the air. He's, you know, he's still, uh, he's got a beard now. Yeah. Uh, but, and Vic Bremer was there, our, our former news, direct, news and program director. Yeah. So, you know, we were, we're all, you know, many of us are retired now, but it was a great, uh, a great reunion. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad I got to just participate. And even in, like, the tail end of that, you know, early 90s, it was not, we, you know, it was pre-internet. It was still kind of the way it had been for at least a couple decades, I think, at that point, in terms of the technology and what, and what, was, what radio was about, local, live, live and local radio, so... Anyway, thanks for going down that trip down memory lane. But what I really want to talk to you about was a couple things. Um, and you and I have talked a few times of, about this in the recent past about, um, well, number, number one, I mean, in Japanese incarceration, you have been actively involved in the local community, commemorating that, remembering yeah. that, not letting people forget about that, which is a great thing for, what, more than 40 years? For, but, but, about 45 years, yeah. Okay. I've been in Seattle about 46 years, yeah. Now, I want to, in, in a little bit, I want to get to an event that's coming up on Tuesday and tell people all about that. But before we get to that, a little bit of context. I think, were you involved in the very first day of remembrance in, in, in Washington? More than that, Felix. I mean, I helped organize it. Oh, that's uh, great. I mean, it was uh, <clears throat> inspired by a, a Chinese-American playwright named Frank Chin. And he came to my door one day, and he had told me he had gotten uh, connected with the local Japanese-American Citizens League, which at the, in the mid-'70s was... Just beginning to, Japanese Americans were beginning to find their voice after 35 years out of camp, uh, and 35 years away from the wartime experience of mass removal and incarceration in American concentration camps during World War II uh, because they were, uh, they looked like, they had the same race as the enemy, the Japanese enemy. Uh, and so uh, the, the local chapter, JCO, was beginning to talk about justice. And redress and redress and reparations, and uh, a simple statement that what happened was wrong, a simple statement that uh, it violated the Constitution and Bill of Rights, and a simple statement that uh, Congress and the President should do something about it, as in, you know, uh, award a token individual compensation, not for property losses or uh, or so on, but for uh, what for the damage done to the Constitution, 
which protects us all, making it an issue for all Americans. Well, Frank Chin came to my door at my, my door in Seward Park huh. and said, you know, Abe, you know, Japanese Americans are, are, are making a move. I think it's bold, but they're they're not they they know how to how to do it. You know, they don't know how to work the media and get the public opinion on their side. And 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 he said, if you lose uh, if you lose Japanese American history, you can kiss Japanese American art goodbye. Uh, and, and that made a lot of sense to me as, as a budding theater artist, an actor, a writer, aspiring writer, um, because without a foundation of a correct history, uh, an accurate history, then the, you know, anything we wrote would not be believed because the, the fundamental premise would not be accepted. The fundamental premise being that this uh, 120,000 people uh, being locked up for four and a half years on average uh, in desolate inland concentration camps in America in World War II happened, or that it, and that it was not justified. Uh, the prevailing thought was, well, besides the thought of remember Pearl Harbor being the, the rallying cry of the 50s and 60s, uh, which, which made my parents' generation just shut up, yeah. because you can, you know, you know, we, we were the enemy, and Pearl Harbor was attacked, and the nation was on edge. Uh, you know, we, 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 the first day of remembrance was designed by Frank, and I executed it under his direction, <laughs> and, uh, to mobilize the Seattle Japanese American community to uh, participate in uh, essentially a piece of street theater. We would gather at the old parking lot of the old Sixth Stadium, Rainier McClellan, and uh, 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 get our recreate the family number tags and suitcases and, you know, uh, uh, buses, uh, National Guard trucks, uh, and, and do a car caravan from Seattle to the Puyallup Assembly Center, well, the Washington, the Puyallup Fairgrounds, which in World War II was the, uh, our hometown concentration camp, the Puyallup Assembly Center, uh, an Army concentration camp, uh, which is a staging ground for, before taking Japanese Americans mostly to uh, Minidoka, Idaho, wow. for the rest of the war. And so that is recreate it and um, get media coverage for it. And uh, we organized the community and weekly meetings. And on the day of it, November 25th, Thanksgiving weekend, 1978, uh, I got there in the morning and was shocked to see, like, places, six stadium parking lot crowded with cars, wow. you know, traffic jam, and, and like 2,000 people came out. Wow. To to uh, and these are these, these are the quiet Americans, the the Japanese, the Nisei generation, who didn't talk to the kids about camp. Um, and so, 2002 was the largest gathering of Japanese Americans in Seattle since World War II. Wow! Right, you know? um, and in the cars going down to Puyallup, you know, a half hour, forty five minute drive, right? Uh, the parents finally opened up to their children, uh, mostly you know, nearly grown children, uh, about finally telling the story. Yes, I remember this. I was a teenager when we, you know, I had to leave my school, all my friends, and be, we lost our home and our, our, our grocery store, our farm, and we were sent to Puyallup. And so finally uh, telling the kids a story that they had suppressed for 35 years. And, and it was suppressed, what, because of shame, or why was it suppressed by individuals? Uh, a desire to protect the children from uh, the... The racial, you know, the idea that if I don't talk about it, didn't happen, and then uh, my kids won't face the same racial prejudice that I did in 1942. Uh, and, and the other was simply that uh, th- there were denialists and revisionists back in the 
in the 70s uh, who denied that the camps, well, that the camps were for our, our own protection, yeah. or that we were coddled and fed there. Why should we complain? And, but the most important thing was military necessity, that the, 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 the since debunked notion that 125,000 people were removed from their homes because the army had a military need to uh, remove them to protect defense installations, the Boeing plant, the water supply. Uh, and, and as we now know, there was not one you know, conviction or one documented case, one verified case of any espionage or sabotage by the Japanese uh, and Japanese-Americans living in Seattle and the West Coast. Nevertheless, but this did not come out, uh, and evidence was not found until the 1980s to show that, that, this, that the Army knew it was a lie, and they still did it, and they, and they suppressed evidence of their lie from the Supreme Court, uh, mm. uh, which, which upheld the constitutionality of the forced eviction at the time. So a number of these factors came together, leading Congress to pass the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, and President Ronald Reagan signed the bill because he knew some, you know, Japanese Americans as in Hollywood, uh, who, mm. you know, the soldiers who served in the in the, the famed 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Uh, he, he probably imagined he he played, you know, their 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 friend in, in, in an old war movie, perhaps. Huh. But he uh, he signed the bill. So <laughs> crazy. Uh, yeah. it, is there one person who's regarded as sort of the like the architect of that plan? to, quote-unquote, evacuate the Japanese from the West Coast? You know, I, I like, you know, there were a number of Boeing engineers, uh, 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 young men, they were in their 40s and 50s, but they're younger than me now. But <laughs> yeah, were, me too. <laughs> right? Uh, Boeing engineers uh, with glasses and pocket protectors and a plan. Uh, there was a Henry Miyatake and Ken Nakano, Chuck Kato, Cherry Kinoshita, not, not an engineer, but uh, they got together and formed a committee. And and uh, lobbied this plan, uh, which which called for a, like individual payment of twenty five thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars per person, and an apology from the government. Um, they were joined by a retired securities analyst, Shosuke Sasaki of West Seattle, uh, who wrote a very um, uh, elab- a, a, a verbose uh, appeal for action uh, to remedy this injustice. And so Seattle was the the launching pad for the popular campaign for Japanese-American redress, took 10 years, hmm. from 78 to 88, which is a remarkably short window of time yeah. for, uh, for, the na- for, for, for the nation to turn around from the idea was of you, you, you deserve to be locked up, you must have done something wrong to, to merit being locked up on masse, to, oh, this was wrong, we shouldn't have done it, and here's an apology from the president, and a token compensation of twenty thousand dollars each, uh, to uh, not not for your property losses, but to uh, establish a precedent that America will never do this again. Wow! And, yeah, ne- no, never again, never again. You heard that phrase before. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, and re- regrettably, we've seen since then that we do tend to forget these things over time, and and have we're we're, we're repeating them uh, in the last several after the last administration. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I remember in the summer of 2016, you and I spoke about something, something related to history. And, and well, 2016 and, and we, was the election of a, of a president. Yeah, the election was coming in that, yeah. in that spring and summer, and you, were, you weren't that optimistic, and you were, you were right. I mean, we, I was, remember we talked about it. I said, oh, come on, and you said no. And you, you, it all bore, I mean, it turned out the way you, you predicted, yeah. unfortunately. 
Um, and that's why I mean it's like organizations like Densho and then the work that you've done to elevate, in particular, the work of John Okada, the, the, the novel No-No Boy. Yes. Um, how did you first stumble across that book? What, do you recall the first time you read that book or someone handed yes, it to you? Well, how- y- yes. I mean, it was a novel published in 1957. John Okada was a C- born in Seattle 100 years ago uh, last Friday. Wow. September twenty second, nineteen twenty three, uh, and and we are now um, celebrating the centennial of John O'Connor's birth with a series of three programs at the Seattle Public Library, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, that uh, the novel was published in fifty seven. Okada was born in Seattle, raised here, Broadway High School, UW, you know, evicted from their hotel, the Yakima Hotel in in Chinatown, uh, and sent to Puyallup in Minidoka. Okada in in camp in from camp, enlists in the military intelligence service, serves in Guam, flying missions over, over Japan, translating enemy messages, comes back to Seattle, gets a degree in um, creative writing and English, writes a play that's staged in the U District at the Tryout Theater, a one-act play hmm. about his military service, uh, writes some short stories, and then gets a job at the Public, Public Library, goes to Detroit for the Detroit Public Library, and there he writes what he hopes to, what he believes is the great American novel. And by this time, Felix, every Japanese American who had a creative bent knew that they had this dynamite story, an epic story of, you know, the mass migration of people from the West Coast into these desolate, you know, internment incarceration camps. Uh, and the things that happened to them there, questionnaires, or the questioning their loyalty, uh, a draft that's instituted in the camps, and men have to decide whether they'll be whether they'll be drafted from a prison camp without the rights. Uh, then the camp war is over, and the, the, the resettlement, the mass another another mass migration of people from the camps scattered across the country. I was I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, for no <laughs> good reason other than the fact that my father got a job from Hart Mountain, Wyoming, to a you know, factory in, in Cleveland. Oh wow! Yeah, we we came back after ten years, but. Um, so, the, this this is a great story, and and there are guys who wanted to write the great Nisei novel, Nisei being second generation Japanese American, the great Japanese American novel. John Okada was the only one who did it, and and it still holds up as the great Japanese American novel. There have been other fine novels written by Japanese Americans about this period of time, but Okada's is the one that has. And you can tell from my, the tone of my my, my passion about this <laughs> is that his is, is, is a novel that 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 goes for the gut and then twists it. Uh, he he takes on all the big issues in this book called No No Boy, um, and yet the protagonist of the novel is a confused, self doubting, self hating, you know, uh, draft resistor from Minidoka, Idaho, um, who searches for meaning, and tries to find out where he fits in. In a post-war Seattle, 1946, that has dramatically changed from the Seattle that they left in 1942, uh, where the community has been divided uh, by uh, whether or not they answer a certain way on a a loyalty questionnaire, and divided by whether or not they volunteered for the Army from camp to prove their loyalty, to prove they were just as American as everyone else, or whether they refused to be volunteer, and then refused to be drafted. And when the army came back and said, hey, you guys fight so well, we love you guys, so as soldiers, we want more, let's draft you. Uh, 
and and a lot of people said you should go to prove your loyalty, and Ichiro Yamada says no, this is just not right. Something something is not right about this, and I can't figure out what it is because I'm because I'm in the middle of it. We're all in the middle of this, and I don't know how to articulate it. So that that's the the the, the, the crux of the novel, the crux of the, of the dilemma, and this novel. Your question was when I discover it. No one read the novel in '57. It wasn't until 1973 when uh, friends of mine that I met in, in San Francisco, just out of college, uh, Sean Wong, Frank Chin, Lost Ninata, Jeff Chan, uh, uh, discovered the novel in a used bookstore in Berkeley. Wow! And they were because they were busy gathering all the um, novels and creative writing by Asian Americans uh, to bolster their literary heritage as something new in 1973 called Asian American Writers. Asian American, yeah. And this is the birth of ethnic studies, birth of the world movement, birth of all that. Um, that's not that long ago. That's only like 50 years ago. That's nothing. Well, in fact, in fact IE, the anthology they published uh, at the time, and has been republished by University of Washington Press, uh, it will celebrate its 50th anniversary next year. That's great. Uh, so it's, it's, it's within our lifetime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so when you read it, I mean, did you were you read like an old? Did you read like originally like an old 1957 paperback copy of it? I, no, they, they, I uh, lost Sean and Frank excerpted the chapter ah. in their anthology. Okay, and that's why that's how we all discovered it. I went back and, and then read the. Oh, then, and then because it was out of print and unavailable, they reached into their own pockets and reprinted the novel in their own paperback edition. Wow. And Sean was selling copies out of the trunk of his car. Wow. Uh, bringing them from San Francisco to Seattle. That's cool. Yeah, mm. and so that's how we have this novel that's been recovered. And so uh, uh, it's been a big part of my life, obviously. So on the centennial, you know, 2023, I, I really had a, a desire to do something, have, to have a legacy be remembered here, here in his hometown. And the Seattle Public Library, coincidentally, uh, two years ago, started a, a guest curator program that invites authors and performers of color to create their own series of uh, programs uh, aimed at uh, promoting equity and bringing in new and diverse perspectives in library programming. And uh, Stacia Brandon there, the literary manager. Oh, she's great. I knew, knew her when she worked at Town Hall. She's Yeah, I've known Stacia oh, yeah. for a long time. She's uh, fantastic. And, and yeah. Seattle City, the City, City of Literature program. Yeah. Uh, 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 called me up and said, uh, "What do you think about doing any Frank? Anything you want, you know, any any kind of pro- series you want to program, we'll do it." And I said, "Well, you know, Okada Centennial is coming up <laughs> next fall, as if you could timing." And so, uh, she's, you know, the library has been terrific in sponsoring three programs. The first of which is this Tuesday, uh, 7 p.m. at the Central Library, where uh, I'll discuss the we'll, we'll discuss the life and legacy of John Okada. A very, very straightforward centennial, you know, uh, uh, reconsider, reconsideration of an author's work on his 100th birthday. I'll tell my stories of the. I, I wrote a biography of John O'Connor in 2018, published by the University of Washington Press. Nice. And, and Sean will follow up with his story of rediscovering the novel, republishing it, and um, what the novel means today, moderated by uh, literary agent uh, Karen Mayetta Allman, who just retired from Elliott Bay Books. Nice. And, but again, the library's been terrific. The second program will be October 24th, Tuesday, uh, from page to stage, the challenges of, of, of adapting No-No Boy uh, as a play for the stage. I'll come back to that in a second. Okay. And the third program 
will be November 19th on a Sunday afternoon at Central Library, uh, the post-war Seattle Chinatown oh, wow. of John Okada, which um, I, I, you, you murmured there because you recognize, and readers of the book will recognize, that the Seattle as a place is so vivid in the novel Nono Boy. Uh, and in, in particular, uh, the, the, the post-war Chinatown, the gambling clubs, the hotels, the restaurants, uh, uh, and the nightclubs. That's great. I love that. See, yeah, when Seattle's a character and it's done well, it's like it's it just it you you know right away. And I remember when I read No No Boy for the first time about ten years ago, uh-huh. I thought I it it really Seattle just pops in that story. When when I mentioned No No Boy, off people will say. Oh, yeah, I love how he describes the weather in Seattle. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. That's and right. It, it, I'll, I'll just read you one paragraph. Yes, please. You know, it, 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 it was the sort of morning that non-Seattleites are always ascribing to Seattle, wet without being really wet, <laughs> and the whole city enveloped in a kind of dull, grayish, thin fog. The rain was there, a finely speckled spray which one felt against the skin of one's face and which clung to water-resistant garments like dew on a leaf. The temperature was around 40 and the clammy chill of the air seeped through the outer coats and past the undergarments and sucked the warmth from the very skin. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's, I mean, that's it. That's how <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. So that, that's our Seattle that we, you know, that we, we know and love. That's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and so it's that, that kind of thing. I mean, in, in the writing, it's there. And so, uh, again, I appreciate the library. They, they do so much great stuff. We did, we had that uh, Pacific Northwest Historians Guild conference here yesterday in that yeah. big, beautiful auditorium on the main floor there. It's just, it's just a great space. It just works out. And they do so much cool stuff focused on the local culture that nobody else would do. Now, you mentioned the challenges of writing a play yes. based on Nonoboy. And did I see something on social media that said you're actually in the midst of doing that or you've already done that? Uh, well, I'm in the midst of doing it. And so, I mean, this sounds crazy. <laughs> I mean, here I'm talking about a three, you know, three, three panel series. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I just finished writing a graphic novel, uh, a co-writing a graphic novel for Chin Music Press called We Hear by Refuse, Japanese American Resistance to Wartime Incarceration. And what a great, if someone, if you haven't seen that yet, you have to get a copy of that We Hear by Refuse. You know, we excerpted it when I was still editing Columbia Magazine a few years ago. It was the first time Columbia ever excerpted a graphic novel, and it might be the last time we ever do it since I don't work there anymore. <laughs> but it was—it just looks so good. Those color pages and the working with you guys was so much fun. It looked so nice, and on the cover, that's one of the, my favorite issues of the magazine. I edited about three or four years worth of them. That was one of my favorite issues. So I it, appreciated that. It and was awesome. The the character that appears on the cover of the graphic novel, Jim Akutsu, is the model for the protagonist of John Okada's Nono Boy. Got it. Okay. They knew each other. Yeah. Uh, so all the connections there, uh, and also I complete I just completed a um, anthology of the literature of Japanese American incarceration for Penguin Classics of all things. Is Pen- the Penguin Classics is that out now or is that May fourteenth, twenty twenty four? Oh wow, that's congratulations! Well, that's, that, what an achievement! Copy editing that, yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be out. Thank you. So in the middle of all this, Felix, yes, I, I was approached two years ago. Uh, commissioned to write a new stage adaptation of No No Boy. Wow. And uh, at the same time, a new trustee at the Seattle Repertory Theater, or Seattle Rep, as they call themselves, <laughs> at the Seattle Rep uh, approached me and said, Frank, 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 we need to get some more Asian American plays on the stage. And I said, well, if you want to do that, uh, here's one, here's two. But the gold standard would be a new uh, version of No No Boy. And, and these two things came together. So last two years, we've been working on that. Wow. And uh, we just did 
a table reading I, uh, of, the, of the first draft. The Seattle Rep has a, a new play series called The Other Season. And um, we could not advertise it in advance because, of, uh, because we had equity actors. And under equity rules, you uh-huh. can't have any publicity in advance. Uh, but we had a, a private um, invitational um, reading. I should have invited you, actually. I was going to say, I don't, I, it must have got lost in the mail. It got lost in the mail, but I mean, <laughs> oh, it was just, I was so stressed out. <laughs> I could not think of it, you know, cover my own bases. Um, wow. Yeah, that's uh, exciting but, though. Do, now, did you did you have experience? Because writing dialogue is really different than writing a lot of any a lot of other stuff. I mean, of course it is. Uh, uh, but you know what, Felix? It's still writing for the ear. Yeah, which is what we did in broadcast news. It's true. It, it is. Uh, you can't turn the page back. You can't go back. You know, it's, it's got to land. And, and for my thirty second radio news stories <laughs> that you recorded in the sweatbox, <laughs> you know, I had to choose my words for to to. Uh, It'll be you know, factual and accurate within the context of a, of a news story, but then generate emotion, grab the ear, yeah. and uh, generate emotion um, in, in, the, in the listeners. So that was good training. The graphic novel was also uh, excellent. Uh, it was like writing a storyboard for a movie. And so that was writing dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. But oh, wow. you, the other thing is, and this is just over 50 years, you do so much, it, it catches up with you. I, I, you. We haven't discussed I started my career as an actor yeah, and, and director. I trained at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, the advanced training program. Uh, and I was and with, with Frank Chin and Lawson and Sean. We were also involved in the Asian American, Asian American Theater Workshop, which was Frank's attempt to create a new sensibility in American theater. You know, uh, besides Asian American literature, it would be Asian American theater. And I, I was a founding member of that group, and uh, you know, it came. In fact, I came to Seattle to do a play at the Ethnocultural Theater at the University of Washington called Nisei Bar and Grill, written by Garrett Hongo, who's now wow. at the University of Oregon, Eugene. Um, and so, this is doing this adaptation uh, with the Seattle Rep Workshop. Uh, has been a full circle moment for me because now I'm coming back to you know, my my roots, as it will. That's uh, very cool. Here. Yeah. Let, let me pause and reintroduce you for people in case they're just joining <laughs> us. Um, we're li- you're listening to Space 101.1 FM. Um, this is Cascade of History, the only live weekly history show all about the Pacific Northwest. My guest tonight is Frank Abe. We're talking about all the work he's done over the last five it's decades. Been, that's 45, yeah. <laughs> 40 years. 40 years. <laughs> Uh, related to Japanese incarceration and Japanese arts and culture and literature, and in particular around the work of John Okada, who wrote the novel No No Boy back in the 1950s. And it's the Okada centennial. It was its 100th birthday. would have been this past Friday. Frank's going to be hosting a series of programs at Seattle Public Library starting this coming Tuesday night and then going into October and November. We'll have all that information at the Cascade of History Facebook page. Um, and you mentioned you're an actor. I wanted to bring this up. I'm, just, I'm glad you mentioned that because... One of my favorite shows when I was a kid was Emergency. Oh, God! And they made that special, filmed in Seattle, where a guy jumped off the Space Needle, a guy fell off a ferry boat. And I didn't know it. I I watched it. I I watched it religiously. I never missed an episode. And then I didn't learn much later that you actually appear in that episode or that that TV movie that was filmed in Seattle. Emergency, colon, most deadly passage. (laughs) That sounds painful. Oh, okay. um, 1977. Now, how did you? What was your role? And how did you get the part in that show? I I got the part because I had a SAG card, 
speaking of, you know, SAG after I had a SAG ah, card. Ah, okay. And I got my SAG card from doing a TV movie the year before called Farewell to Manzanar. Oh, Based on the famous wow. novel by Jean, uh, memoir by Jeannie Houston, my, okay. who happened to be my housing officer at UC Santa Cruz. Wow. Time. And so I auditioned for that movie, got the part, and I played a, a featured role as a camp, a JUCL camp leader. Wow. Yeah, and so with a SAG card, I was in Seattle, and the casting call went out, and I, I, I didn't have an agent or anything, so I just went in for a cold audition. And I, I got a role as a medic. So as a medic, <laughs> I, uh, there was a gag at the top of the Space Needle, uh, a daredevil, stunt, you know, stunt guy trying to get attention, attention seeker, who's going to parachute off the top of the Space Needle. You know, folks, don't don't try this at home. Yes. Uh, and so he, he perishes the space needle, and of course falls quickly and breaks his leg. And uh, the two visiting emergency medics, whose names escape me, um, uh, Gage and oh Vincent, it, it was not uh, it was not Gage and uh, Randolph Mantooth and Kevin Ty. Yeah. It, it was a two visit. It was it was it was a pilot for a, a, I think uh, an emergency series in Seattle. Oh. Where I get they were it. taking emergency to different cities. I see. So it was it was actually a, a trial balloon. Okay. Just a two-hour TV movie, Emergency Most Deadly Passage. And, uh, uh, and this was like a B story, uh, uh, the Space Needle gag. The main story was a fire aboard the ferry crossing Puget Sound, and the, they had to mobilize the emergency you know, uh, crew out there. So anyway, I, I run up, and I have three lines. Uh, uh, you know, he's okay, and well, he looks bad, and blah, 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 and liking this you know, um, uh, aid, aid kit. Uh, so that was my, 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 big, uh, my big emergency bed. Was that just one day on the set, I assume? It was one day. Wow, that's pretty cool. And then and it's time for, for all time, immortality on the TV screen. I uh, just got a residual for it for like $2 from Universal the other day. That's yeah. awesome. It's that's awesome. Good. That's great. This um, is why they're on strike, by the way. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you, you shouldn't be talking about this. Okay. <laughs> I will report you to the shop steward. Mm-hmm. Um, so about the play, what's the timeline oh, I'm, for I'm when... on active status, by the way, so I'm okay. I'm okay. All right. What's the timeline for when we might see a production of the of No No Boy? Very good question, Felix. Uh, you know, this is still uh, uh, a first draft. Fortunately, it was well received by our, our invitational audience. Um, e- even if someone, uh, say, say the Seattle rep, but just if anyone said they wanted to produce it, you know, right to tomorrow, it would still take about two years to schedule a production for any major regional theater. Yeah. Because of you know you got you know, the cast, set designers, light designers, so uh, it'll be about two years. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and a couple now, maybe this is a dumb question, but why? I mean, obviously there's a there's a narrative arc and there's a theme to the work that you've been doing for the past forty plus years yeah. around around all this stuff. Why why is this so important to you? You know, my my father was at Heart Mountain, Wyoming, and you would think, oh yes, well I'm I'm motivated by my my, my family connection. Uh, I, I don't think so. I, I've never really thought about my, my, my father in, in these terms. Uh, I, 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 what, I, what motivates me was actually my, my connection with the theater and with the Day of Remembrance and meeting Henry Miyatake, Shosuke, Cherry Kinoshita, you know, who inspired me to... Uh, they were like Japanese Americans I had never met before in California. People who were uh, politically active and aware and connected uh, and... Um, bold you know they were not passive yeah and so i mean that was it's the same with sean and frank i mean they 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 were not just writers they were writer activists in terms of you know creating a new um 
you know, context around the writing uh, of Asian American literature. So, you know, it was, it, it was the chance of being part of something new on, on two different fronts and um, injustice. I mean, the, the, uh, I suppose uh, the, the fact that even though we say never again uh, and try to make sure this doesn't happen again, we are, we're faced today and over the last, you know, six years perhaps uh, with the uh, continued fear of the other. Yeah. You know, uh, it was fear of the other, of the unknown, uh, that drove the uh, President Roosevelt to uh, uh, sign an order to exclude all those Japanese, Japanese-Americans, uh, two-thirds of whom were American citizens, but who on the posters, you know, that, that the order is you know, ordering you out of your home, it, it applied to aliens and non-aliens. Yeah. So they are euphemisms for being a U.S. citizen. You're non-alien. And that same fear of the other... Uh, seems to resurface like clockwork whenever yeah. America feels itself threatened from abroad. Um, in the 1980s, when the import, you remember the imports of cars and uh, transistor radios from Japan uh, stoked fears of an uh, economic Pearl Harbor. And we had the, uh, the beating death of Vincent Chin in Detroit by two Detroit auto workers. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Beca- uh, because of that fear. Um, fear of the other. After 9-11, uh, we, you know, we had the suicide bombing of the World Trade Center. Uh, provokes the racial profiling of Muslims and Arab Americans, anyone who, who wears a turban, uh, uh, and the threatened, intern- the threatened roundup of Iranian Americans. Mm-hmm. And then we discussed the election of 2016, yeah. which brings racial division and latent white nationalism to the very top of the U.S. government, uh, with a ban on travel from majority Muslim nations, and we have family separations at the southern border, and the caging of asylum seekers from Latin America, which is still happening today. Uh, and finally, during the pandemic, Felix, uh, yeah. we, we, we have an American president with, who, who uh, in front of the microphone, says, uh, cries out about China virus and blames the Kung flu, yeah. which, which stochastic terrorism works like, you know, you're not directly calling for violence against Asian Americans, but people get the message. Yeah. And we have beatings of, of Asian Americans on the street today. Uh, Attacks like the attack on the Wingless Museum uh, last. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, a a man uh, about my age, actually, uh, with a sledgehammer, took a sledgehammer to the windows of the Wingless Museum in Seattle, smashing the windows, uh, and blaming all the Chinese are the cause of all my problems. So um, this Mm. is how I get back at them. So So, the the work is never done, is what you're saying. uh, (laughs) 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 There's a steady supply of it. So I mean, so this this this. This does keep us going, myself and my colleagues. Yes. What I, I you know, um, Mutual Fish just shut down after you know yes. seventy six years in business, and I was I went over and talked to Harry Yoshimura. I was talking to him about Great. his dad, Dick Yoshimura, and stuff. And you know, he, he told me he was eighty years old. And I, I later I drove home. You know, I had to call him back. I did the math. It's like, wait a minute, your dad, Dick Yoshimura, was at Minidoka, and you're eighty years old, so you were born there. He's like, yeah. And he was just sort of like, yeah, all my friends were born there. That's he, oh, it was, he was wow. so matter of fact about wow. it, but. The part of the story, I, I, when I told the story on Cairo Radio a week or so ago, was about the, it was about the how popular the fish store was and how gr- high the quality was, uh-huh. but also the fact that like, what an amazing triumph that is to come back f- after the camps, yeah. and start a business, and have it be successful, so successful that you know you, eighty years later or whatever, seventy five years later, your son is running it, your grandson is part of it too, and it's this beloved community treasure that's being that when it shuts down, everyone's heartbroken. Yeah. That's like. But I don't want to forget that 
Harry Oshimura was born in Minidoka and still achieved all he did with, with his dad in that business. I mean, it's... Great story. Great, I, great, I love the stories. Story. I just love these stories. They're, yeah. they're fabulous. And I, I also think there's so much about the actual, like, 1942 that's not been told because of all the Seattle police records that aren't available, stuff that's just gone. The, the and, Seattle police aided the FBI yeah. in the arrests of the community leaders. Yeah, the, so, what yeah. they call the national political detail or something. I did a story about that, and the, the police department issued an apology. This is like five or six years ago. Yes, um, good research. Anyway, it's it's. Uh, I, I admire your dogged effort. I admire the, the the fact you marry history and art together and do stuff like write plays and put together this terrific series of programs coming up at SPL. You're you're down there in the trenches. You're on the barricades. Whatever whatever the metaphor is, I like it, and I, I I'm glad to know you, Frank, and glad to be able to have you tonight on Cascade of History, talking about all your stuff. Um, I will put everything at the Facebook page, and I'll we'll post the podcast a little bit later tonight, and I'll send a link to you so you can share that around with uh, your followers and stuff. But um, I love those programs coming up. I I definitely want to try to make the one about uh, in November about the uh, the. Post-war Chinatown in Seattle. That would be a. That sounds fascinating. It would be so great to see. One it. quick question: Will any of these programs be recorded, audio or video, for sharing later? The Tuesday night's program will be on the broadcast on the Seattle channel. Excellent. Oh, right on. That's As will great. the November program. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. That's yeah. great. Okay, well, we'll I'll dig up the links for that, and I'll make sure we get that on the Cascade of History Facebook page too, as well. well Thank you. Well, Frank Abe, it's wonderful. Let's have you back. Let's not have you wait so long for the next time you come back on the show. Let's have you back again really soon, okay? Happy to anytime, Felix. Have a good night, Frank. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Frank Abe joining us on Cascade of History. Old friend of mine, wonderful guy. uh, What a great, great, amazing amount of material he's producing, all related to uh, those incredible stories that must not be forgotten. So... All right. Uh, got a couple more things to do here before the top of the hour when Jay's radio hour will be coming on. Um, Jay's going to be playing his 78 RPM jazz hillbilly and old world records found on a road trip through the Mojave Desert. And it's not pronounced Mojave the way it looks, the way it's spelled. It's Mojave. And he's doing a special feature on the ukulele star who voiced Jiminy Cricket. I'm, I'm going to stay tuned for that as well. All right. Uh, a couple things we need to do here before Jay gets in here to do his show. Um, now, last week, we played the first installment in this vintage audio piece, which I didn't know anything about when I played it, other than that it sounded, um, parts of it sounded, uh, it was about Chief Seattle, parts of it sounded pretty well done and respectful, parts of it sounded very dated and very, um, I don't know, kind of thing that uh, doesn't necessarily portray indigenous people accurately uh, in terms of what we know now that we didn't know back in 1951. Uh, what I learned in the last couple of days is that it's from a series that was produced for the Centennial of Seattle back in 1951. It's a show that is called, um, it is called, what is it called? The show is called, <laughs> the show is called, I don't have my notes. No, it's called, uh, They Were Heroes. Hang on a second here. No, it's called, Their Name Was Courage. That's a tricky name to remember. Uh, there's... About six, at least six episodes were recorded. There might have been more that were written. Gloria Chandler was a well-known child educator and radio expert back in the 40s and 50s. She had some connections with the Bullitt family, uh, the owners of King Broadcasting, and she did spent a lot of time in Seattle and spent a lot of time on this uh, project to do audio plays about Seattle history. And so um, the, uh, what, we f- what I found out about this particular episode, this one about uh, Chief Seattle, is that um, she got help. Gloria um, Chandler got help from the really well-known um, uh, anthropologist here do, who did 
amazing amounts of work around the indigenous community. Erna Gunther at the University of Washington, she published a number of books, um, pamphlets about uh, like early um, use of indigenous use of plants for different things and uh, indigenous language. And as you'll hear in this next little snippet we're going to play, you might have remembered from last week, there's actually chanting and singing that are part of it that sound, I mean, I, I, I don't know how accurate they are, but I couldn't tell when I listened to it last week. But it turns out those are actually recordings of a guy named Martin Sampson, who's part of the Swinomish tribe. Um, I think he was born in 1890. He wrote a book about Skagit County indigenous people that was published about 50 years ago. And I've reached out to the Swinomish tribe to see if he has any descendants, because I want to find out more about this story. Um, this article I found from the Seattle Times from 1951 says that um, the chants are authentic, but presented great difficulties because being family heirlooms, they always were considered too sacred to be used. So somehow or other, um, Gloria Chandler and Martin Sampson arrived at some version of the chants and music that's heard that was okay to use in these recordings. They were played a lot, like on King Radio back in uh, 1951 for the City Centennial. Anyway, let's, uh, let's uh, go ahead and get to the second installment. This is about three and a half minutes long, I think. This is, called, this is from that series from 1951, which <laughs> was called Their Name Was Courage. This is about Chief Siel. One morning, Chief Swayab called Seattle. My son, 12 summers have passed since first I held you in my arms. It is time you went alone into forest to find your Tamanawis. I am ready, my father. Go then. May the great spirit help you. Oh, Siat spent the day alone on the shore, fasting and praying. When night came, he went into the forest to seek his Tamanawis, his guardian spirit. I fear you not, spirits of the forest. Your voices are voices of my sisters and my brothers. You will help me find my Tamanawis. <coughs> my sister, Clearbrook, I greet you. Your waters will wash my body that I shall be clean without and within for my Tamanawis. <coughs> No, my brother Salmonberry. I will not eat you, though hunger pangs gnaw my stomach. I must be strong in fasting until my Tamanawis comes. For two days and nights without food or sleep, Siat sought his guardian spirit in the forest. But the spirit did not come. At last, just before the dawn of the third day, he cried to the great spirit. Oh, great spirit! Father of my people, is there no guardian for Sialt? No spirit for the chief's son? But there was no answer. Sialt was so tired and so weak from hunger he could hardly go forward, but he pushed himself on into the forest. Daylight came and the giant trees turned from black to green, but Sialt didn't see the miracle of morning. He had fallen to the ground and knew nothing. When he came to himself, the sun above the treetops was sending shafts of pale green light among the trees. Seattle lay bathed by one of the shafts, and in it, floating lazily above the boy's head, hung a great white bird. Get up, Seattle. I am your Tamanawis, bird of peace. Keep me always in your heart. My Tamanawis? White peace bird, like, like the bird canoe of the white men. 
So the boy, Seattle, became the man, Seattle, chief of the Suquamish, leader of the Duwamish Confederacy. He led his tribe in council, and he led them in war when the northern enemies attacked. But he always carried peace in his heart, and always the dream was with him. All right, that was the second installment of the episode of Their Name Was Courage about Chief Seattle, um, produced by Gloria Chandler back in 1951 for the Seattle Centennial. It's Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. We've got about, oh, seven or eight minutes left of the program, and uh, Jay's Radio Hour will be on next. He's doing a live show tonight. He is getting ready in the next room. I can see him through the double glass here of the studio window. It's like a real radio station having another show coming in live after me. I love this. It's usually it's just I turn off all the lights and go home. And this is a couple weeks in a row now we've had live shows back to back. I love it. It's I wish we had live shows all the time. Anyway, um, and uh, we'll have more information about that, hopefully about Martin Sampson, the guy whose voice we hear doing the chanting in that recording from 1951. Now, I mentioned that I, yesterday was the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild Conference at Seattle Public Library. I was the keynote speaker. It was a really fun event. I'm really grateful to be invited. A bunch of really nice people. Saw some folks I hadn't seen for a long time. Met some people in person. Uh, met Megan Churchwell, who's been on the show a few times talking about the Guild Conference. She was on the show last week with us. And uh, Jim Roop, who organized the whole thing. And I had this little story that I shared yesterday. And I, I mentioned earlier, I tried to record myself, but I failed in doing that. Didn't press the right button on the little portable recorder. But, um, you know, that recording from the Centennial for the 150th anniversary back in 2001, um, I want to talk about this kind of phony holiday we created at Mohai called Cherry Grove Day. And this is part of the story. I'll try and fit this into the time here. It was early 2001, and the Seattle Sesquicentennial, the 150th birthday of the city, was on the horizon. It's really hard to believe that's already 22 years ago. I'd been working at Mohai for a little more than a year at that point. And honestly, we were competing with the website HistoryLink, in my mind, for the hearts and minds of the city when it came to which entity would be most associated with the sesquicentennial. I know this sounds really petty, but there's this notion. I think the competition was good for everybody. It made HistoryLink sharper. It made Mohai sharper. Now, it wasn't, an, it wasn't like an all-out battle, but it was something of a contact sport. And um, I've always been grateful to Walt Crowley, the late founder of HistoryLink, for kind of... Uh, bringing this sort of competitive spirit to this whole thing. Um, now, History Link was relatively new, maybe only a couple of years old. It wasn't clear how their role would mesh with Mohai's role. Mohai was, at that point, we were a little long in the tooth, frankly, with the old Mohai in Montlake. We were struggling with a massive capital campaign that was focused on relocating, at that point, to a new museum that would have been at the convention center on Pike Street. But that's another story for another day. Um, fortunately, the South Lake Union emerged, and the armory became a much better option than the convention center. But meanwhile, lots of plans were being put in place for festivities all around the community to mark the sesquicentennial. First thing was going to be the anniversary of the arrival of the advance party. David Denny, John Lowe, and Lee Terry, they landed on September 25th, 1851. That anniversary is tomorrow. And September 25th, 2001 was when Mohai's Seattle 150 exhibit would open. Then there'd be more events around the time of November 13th to mark the anniversary of the arrival of the full Denny party at now, what's now West Seattle. I was new to the job at Mohai in terms of figuring out how to communicate our stories and connect with the media. We had a website that was very old and dated. It was really simple, and there was no social media yet. We had no marketing budget. I feared that we would lose in public reception to HistoryLink, that Mohai would somehow get lost in all the media attention that that shiny new website was getting, and it was very cool. It was all very new and exciting in those days. And one day in March 2001, I was thumbing through an old book. It's uh, Four Wagons West by Roberta Fry Watt. I was doing some research for Seattle 150. 
I read about the day the Denny party left Cherry Grove, Illinois, and said goodbye to their neighbors, the Dunlaps, and headed west. The anniversary of their departure was April 9th, 1851. I'm sitting there, it's March 2001, and I thought, wait a second, the Cherry Grove anniversary, that could be Cherry Grove Day, we could have some fun with that. I ran upstairs and found uh, Leonard Garfield, the director of the museum, and Lorraine McConaughey, the historian, told them what I had in mind, and we put together, uh, in a hurry, this crazy event. We had Brewster Denny, uh, one of the descendants of Arthur Denny, other Denny party descendants come to the museum, the old one in Montlake, on the afternoon of April 9th, 2001. I got help from Como TV. Turns out, the, where the Denny party left, where the Denny family left from in Illinois back in 1851, their next-door neighbors, the Dunlaps, their descendants still live there. So with help from Como TV, we got the ABC affiliate in the Quad Cities of Illinois to go and film the Dunlap descendants, film the place where the Denny's had left from back in uh, 1851. All This is all in Cherry Grove, Illinois. And so on the big day, we had a, it was very low tech. We had a big TV. We played some, uh, like a VCR tape of that film of the Dunlap family back in Cherry Grove, Illinois. You know, there's no video hookup and FaceTime didn't exist yet. The most modern thing we had was a speakerphone where we had uh, those Dunlap family people on the phone from Cherry Grove, Brewster Denny and the other Denny family descendants there. And Brewster got pretty emotional, kind of tears came to his eyes. And so we celebrated Cherry Grove Day for probably the first, I think the only time ever in Seattle history. But the big point for me, the Seattle Times was there. The PI was there. Como TV was there. Other stations, KUOW, Sam Eaton, a reporter was there. He got great tape of Brewster Denny, you know, sort of in tears about this family history coming together. Stories came out, I think, that afternoon in the Times, the next day in the PI, and it talked about, you know, the, the sesquicentennial celebration had been kicked off. It all started at Mohai with Cherry Grove Day, and in public perception, it looked like we owned the sesquicentennial, and, and sent, we'd sort of, we'd beat History Link at the game of trying to claim the sesquicentennial, easy for me to say, first. I know that sounds really petty and crass, but <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was all in good fun. It was just really cool. Cherry Grove Day is one of the highlights of my career there at Mohai. But Walt Crowley and HistoryLink, to their credit, they ended up getting more money from the city for the sesquicentennial than Mohai did. Walt was always good at getting more money than Mohai could in the fundraising department. So anyway, that's just a little petty anecdote from my time at Mohai and the good kind of uh, Wild West days of celebrating the 150th anniversary of our great city of Seattle. Well, that's going to wrap things up here on uh, Cascade of History for Sunday, September 24th, 2023. Uh, let's see. Did I, I think... One thing I wanted to get to, we didn't get to this time, was the uh, a new feature called um, Overdue Books. And uh, we'll do that next time. Um, I encourage you to go to our Facebook page, and you can uh, comment there and say what your favorite book is. Favorite Pacific Northwest history book, ideally. To tell us what the book title is. Tell us why you like it. Tell us uh, when it was published, how you first came across it. And maybe I'll reach out to you and do an audio interview, or we'll just read stuff on the air. Not sure how this feature is going to work out exactly yet, but it's called Overdue Books. Will be an occasional thing where we look into highlight books from uh, Pacific Northwest history that haven't gotten as much attention as they should. Um, not sure who is going to be on next week's show because you know we like to treat history like it's breaking news. You never know what's going to be history next week. Um, but I want to thank Frank Abe for joining us and talking about all his terrific projects um, around John Okada, the John Okada Centennial, and No No Boy, the work he has planned uh, coming up for those terrific programs at Seattle Public Libraries this Tuesday, September 26th. We'll put information there at the Facebook page as well. Um, and I want to thank all the people at the Pacific Northwest Historians Guild for inviting me to be the keynote speaker. And thanks to Space 101.1 FM listeners for listening and contributing. Have a good night, everybody.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it. Watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.